Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not yet far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, He said, follow me. The word of the Lord. As as many of you know, um, my family and I spent a couple of years in England, 2005 to 2007. The reason why we went there was to work on a PhD in New Testament studies. Now, mind you, we were not in Oxford or Cambridge. I did not get into those schools. We were in Bristol University second-tier university. For a couple of years, I was working on this thesis full-time. The whole object in an English dissertation is that you work on it by yourself, and you're writing what amounts to a two- to three-hundred-page paper with a thousand footnotes and tons of references all over the place. You're supposed to work in order to produce a body of work that advances the knowledge in your field of study. Well, for two years, I worked on it full-time, And then for four more years, I worked on it part-time when we moved back to America. It was isolating. It was challenging. There were days when I didn't want to open it up. 
There were days when I was working simply to figure out where a comma should go in a sentence. And at the end of six years, I finally submitted this 200-plus page piece of work. Six months later, in January of 2012, not too long ago, I went to defend my thesis. Now, I had doubts about the quality of the work, the advancement of knowledge that I was putting forth, but it wasn't until I got there that I found out very clearly and truly that it was a complete fail. Literally, what they said to me was, this piece of work is not up to the quality or the insights that we're looking for in a PhD or doctoral thesis. It falls short. You fail. How about you? How do you respond to your mistakes? How do you respond when you let somebody down? How do you respond to your own epic failures? Another question to be asking is, am I able to share about this in front of you because I don't care about PhD thesis? Or is it because, honestly, my identity truly is in Christ Jesus? What is our normal response to failure? One of the things we tend to do is hide or deny the extent of our failure. We want to diminish what we've lacked or fallen short in. Another is we simply give up in that area of life. You fail in the PhD area, head to something else. Or we try harder. We buckle down with self-determination and determine that we are going to get there. All of this makes sense. And it makes sense because, look, we live in a merit and performance-based culture. Everything we do in life, essentially, is bound up in performance and hard work. Whether it is your career or school, for those of you who are in school, sports, the other talents that you have, even raising kids, it's all about performing. A friend of mine, Kevin, was on the bench of the basketball team when we were in high school. But the coach gave him a few minutes, and he got three points and a couple rebounds. Next game, he got a little bit more time. Midway through the season, he was starting. Why? Because he was performing at the level they needed. The points and rebounds matched what they were looking for. His performance resulted in starting. And it's not just in work or school or sports or drama It's in relationships, too. I mean, think about the way you build friends or get a girlfriend or keep a spouse. You build trust. You show that you love and care, that you show that you're there. And you can also break that trust, fail, and lose it all. Everything we do is performance-based. But the gospel, the gospel deals with us differently. The gospel is on the basis of grace, not what we deserve, but what God gives us instead. And that's why it is so hard for us to grasp the gospel fully. Because we live in a performance-based culture and we apply it to not only ourselves, but everyone else. You see, if we could actually apply the gospel to ourselves, it would change how we view ourselves and so how we deal with everything, even our failures. 
And applying the gospel is what Jesus does with Peter on that beach, dealing with his failures. So here's the scene. We just had it read to us. The scene is, it's after the resurrection. Jesus has already appeared to the disciples in the upper room. He's already met with these guys, Peter, James, John, Thomas, these guys. And Peter, sometime later, says, hey, let's go fishing. They all agree. They hop in the boat. There's seven of them there that night. They fish all night. They catch nothing. In the morning, some guy is on the shore 100 yards away. They can't really tell who he is. Hey, guys, did you catch anything? No. Hey, try throwing your nets over there. They throw their nets over there, and it's filled with fish. They realize it's Jesus. Peter dives in. The rest of them actually do the work to get the boat in. They get to shore. There's this great meal. They hang out together as old friends. And then Jesus turns to Peter in front of his friends. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Simon Peter, son of John, he addresses him directly. Do you love me? He says it three times. And the reason is all the commentators agree that he says it three times is he's paralleling Peter's three denials a few chapters earlier. On the night before Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, Jesus said, Peter, you will deny me tonight. Peter said, no way, Lord. That very night he denies him three times, just as Jesus said. He swore he would never abandon Jesus. He would do whatever, stay with him whenever. And yet there he is denying he even knows him. In cowardice and unbelief, he rejects, publicly rejects Jesus. And so when Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? It's like a a surgeon cutting deep into Peter's heart. And every cut hurts. But of course, when Jesus cuts, it's the cut that hurts in order to heal. And the reality is you'll find that if you go close to Jesus, if you open up this Bible and start reading it, it will sometimes hurt. But it's like a surgeon cutting you for your own good. So Jesus cuts deeply. And specifically, he says, do you love me more than these? Now, there's a couple of different interpretations on what Jesus is getting at when he says, do you love me more than these? But essentially, it adds up to this. Am I your primary and first love? Am I central to your thoughts, your desires, your will, your being and self-understanding, Peter? Am I the main thing in your life? And of course, it's the same thing that Jesus asks all of us. Do you love me more than these? Am I the main thing? Or what is the these things that you love more than me? Is it your career that you love more than me? Is it your kids that you love more than me? Is it your health, your comfort, your friends and their approval? Another way to ask that same question is, where do you find your identity? What gives you a sense of worth? Where do you find purpose and meaning in life? Another way to ask that same question is, when your mind is free to wander, what is it you think about most? Where do your daydreams go? Or the opposite, what are your biggest nightmares? What is the constant anxiety that wakes you up in the middle of the night, that drives your worries during the day? 
do you love me more than these? What is your primary and first love? You know, our most painful failures, our most painful failures reveal our first loves. Think about it. When we let ourselves down in a particular area that we're invested in, when it fails us, when the people that we're putting all of our lives into fail us, when something lets us down, how do we respond? Think again about how we respond to our failures. Since our first loves tend to be performance-based, whether it's our career or our kids or, or health, it's all performance-based, then if we do fail, what do we have to do? We have to hide or diminish or deny the level of our failure. And you see this in our defensiveness, right? What are you most defensive about? You're most defensive about whatever it is that is most important to you. So if your kids are what's most important to you, you cannot take criticism of your kids because that's criticism of you. For me, I've found that something I'm often defensive about is being right. And if I'm going to be honest and trace that down, why is it that I get most defensive when I feel like my being right is being challenged? It's because I'm putting my identity in being right. You know, I'm the guy with insights, with good decision-making, with wisdom, with leadership. So if you're questioning my decision-making, you're not just questioning whether there's a better path, you're questioning me and my value. So I have to fight back if I feel like I'm being called into question. If we fail in a first love area, some of us will try harder. Recommit, work more, because you know what? You've got to prove yourself. If you can't provide for your family, who are you? If you don't make the team, who are you? Working harder, trying to prove yourself has never been one I've given myself to. I've usually chosen this third path of responding to failure. It's finding another main love. When you fail in one area, huh, go some other direction. Dismiss the previous pursuit, finding something that might be a little bit easier. And so you can trace just several years of me in high school going from sports and wanting to be an athletic kid but failing to make the team in basketball and in football. Actually, you make the team, but you don't actually play in football. And then realizing, you know what, I should go into academics because I'm a good student. But then in academics, once I started putting all my eggs in that basket, I realized there are kids who are way smarter than me. So I pushed that one aside and tried things like student government or even Christian activity because I was one of those Christian kids going on all the mission trips, showing up at every Young Life event. Fail in one area, that's okay, go some other direction. As any of us know, we can turn almost anything into a primary love. How do you respond to failure? Deny it, try harder, find another main love. Now, I want you to hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is don't keep trying. <laughs> what I'm not saying is it's, it's not okay to switch paths. What I'm not saying is you, sh you should wallow publicly in your failures. 
What I'm saying is I want us to look at what's behind our response and our tendencies. Does the way we respond reveal first love issues? And are we listening to and applying the gospel to our hearts? And is it demonstrated in how we respond when we fall short? You see, the gospel deals differently with us than work, than sports, than school, or even than friends and family. You know what's kind of funny? That when I was first dealing with the loss, the failure of my PhD thesis, the defense of my thesis, both I myself and people around me all pointed in responding, they all pointed to my successes, my other successes. Hey, you're a good preacher. Look, you started a church. You have such a great friends and family group. Think about how I was consoling myself and even how people were consoling me. Everyone consoled me in my failure based on performance in another area. Hey, don't worry about that failure. You're really good at this. Keep working hard at that. But my identity, the reason for me to hold my head up or to have confidence is not based on PhDs or CCV or friends and family. It should be based in Christ. My identity and worth and value should be based in Christ, whether I succeed or fail in any other set of measurements in life. Do you love me more than these, Jesus asks. And Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And you know, he says it three times emphatically, but really as we're reading this, what we see is that Peter is actually not making an attempt to explain his past denials or to prove himself. He doesn't say, Lord, you know, you know what happened that one night when, when I denied you? I, I was just caught off guard. I mean, if, if I had to do it over again, here's what I'd say. It's really not that big of a deal. It was just a servant girl who asked me a question nobody heard. He's not diminishing. He's not trying to deflect. He accepts the accusation. And he's grieved. We read in verse 17, when Jesus asks the third time, he truly gets it. Peter gets that this is talking about his failure. And Peter is grieved. He's cut to the heart because he is very, very aware of his own failure and his shortcomings. And he says to Jesus, he says, I, I love you, Jesus, but I can't prove it. And so he says in verse 17, you know everything. You know my heart. You know the desires of my heart. I desire, I desire to love you. I want to want to love you first. But I'm going to fail you, Jesus. You know, Jesus is actually asking the impossible. Do you love me more than these? Is an impossible thing for us to succeed in. Can Peter really love Jesus most all the time? Can you? Can anyone?
You know, the sad thing is that even as we're talking about first loves and loving Jesus, many of us, even as you're sitting here, are responding by trying to recommit to Jesus. There's an internal thing that goes on as a preacher is preaching and you're listening and processing. And it has something to do with guilt and determination. And it goes something like this, is as we're talking about it, some of you who have faith and are walking in this whole Jesus thing are like, oh, he's right. I need to give up my other loves. I've been loving my career or my kids or my spouse or the approval of people too much. I need to love Jesus more. And so a little bit of guilt and a little bit of self-determination, and you're going to leave here and you're going to do better this week, right? But do you see what we're doing even in that process? We are even making loving Jesus a performance-based religion rather than a grace-driven gospel. The gospel tells us this. The good news starts out like this. You are a failure. All have sinned and fall short. All sin, all fall short. But the gospel and the good news goes on to tell us, but we are made right with God by grace through Jesus' death for us. When we live by the gospel of grace, when I live by the gospel of grace, I can confess and reveal my failures because my identity and my worth is not based on my performance, but on Christ's. My worth and value cannot be taken away or stolen or diminished even when I fail. Because as Jesus said, hanging there on the cross, it is finished. It's done. The only performance that ever mattered has been completed and won. And here on the beach, Jesus wants to tell Peter, it's finished for you too, Peter. And you know, Jesus doesn't just forgive canceling the debts that Peter owed. He gives Peter more, filling his account in. Jesus says, I'm not just going to forgive you. I want to use you. And so he goes on to say to Peter, Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. I love this part of the secondary response of Jesus. Do you love me, Jesus, as much as I can? Then feed my sheep. You know, when anything else in our life is a primary love, when anything else comes first besides Jesus, it tends to narrow our love. Because it's all primarily based on self-love. I mean, even take something as altruistic as loving your kids. If loving your kids is your primary and first love, then they must be happy. They must succeed or I'm a failure. My kids must love me back, or my life's not worth living. In many ways, it's still about me, because I'm finding my identity and worth in my kids. But here, as you love Jesus more, As you love him most, it leads to feed my sheep. When you love Jesus most, 
you end up loving and caring for others more. And in that process, our priorities are righted. We finally have balance and direction that matters and that lasts. I'm so grateful that Jesus picks Peter. And when Jesus picks Peter here on the beach, it's not at all like picking kids on the playground at school. Their performance matters. Their height, speed, strength matters. If you're slow, if you can't jump, if you're not that strong, you will get picked last. But when it comes to Jesus, he's not looking for your skill set. He's not looking for your resume. He's not even looking for your moral goodness. Peter is not faithful. He's full of big talk, and yet he's a coward. He claims lots of stuff and then denies Jesus. His life is shameful in an honor and shame culture. He is a fail, as the kids used to say. And quite frankly, if you fail in anything else, you may be done. If you fail academically, you may not get into that university. If you fail to hit your benchmarks at work, you are not likely to get promoted. Even in relationships, if you fail, you may end up destroying your marriage and losing your friends. Because in the end, in all aspects of life, we really do live on the basis of you must perform in order to succeed. But in the gospel, in the gospel, the starting place is admitting your weakness and failure and trusting in the grace of Jesus. And when you do that, you're finally fully qualified for anything and everything. It's not wait till you are better to come to Jesus or hide your mistakes and then he'll accept you. It's quite frankly, acknowledge that you're broken. Acknowledge that you're not good enough and that you simply desire to love Jesus, that you want to want to love him. And God will use you. I love the picture of this story, especially the first half of the story. There are Peter and the boys at night fishing. There they are fishing. In the morning, they've caught nothing. The dude on the shore says, hey, try the other side. They throw the nets on the other side. The nets are filled with fish. And then the brilliant one, John, who's the only one who tends to think, it seems like, is like, wait a minute, I've seen this before. There was a time when we were fishing and we didn't catch anything. And then that guy, Jesus, said, throw your nets on the other side. And then our nets were breaking with fish. And he called us, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Wait a minute, that guy's Jesus. He turns to Peter and all the other boys. It's the Lord. It's Jesus. And Peter, the impetuous one, the ever emotional one, throws on his cloak and then jumps into the water. And I love the language that John uses. It's not, and, Jesus, and Peter climbed over the edge of the boat and swam ashore. The language that's used is he threw himself. It's the same word that's used for casting out demons. It's the same word that's used for tossing the nets out. It's the same word you would use if you were going to throw a ball. Peter throws himself over the side, swims to shore wildly over 100 yards. 
Peter does not throw himself over the side to drown himself. He's not like, oh goodness, it's Jesus. I better, I better go now. He's, he wants to see Jesus. And what do you think he does? As soon as he gets up on shore, soaking wet, complete and total mess, seaweed and sand and everything, do you think he, he gets all formal? Hello, mister of Nazareth. It's a pleasure to make your acquaintance again. We used to be good friends. Do you remember? I don't think he approaches with all the ritual of our normal religious approach, bowing at every step, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, you are the great and mighty one. Lord Jesus, may I take another step closer. What do you think he does? I bet he runs and hugs Jesus, soaking and messy and smelly from an all-night work in salt water. Either that or Jesus hugs him back. It's a big wet hug of best friends. I think that quite possibly, I think that quite possibly something is missing in our attempts to clean up and get right for Jesus. That something sometimes is even missing in our religious ritual and our self-disciplined approaches to Jesus. I can only meet him if I go through these steps in the morning. It misses the opportunity for the loving, wet hug with Jesus. To deal with Jesus on a daily basis, the way that it is when your kids see you and you've been gone for a long time, and they come and just run and embrace you, or, or the way they do that with your dog, because that was the case last week. No, this is a true story. I was, I, my kids, my family were gone for a week, over a week. They came home on Saturday night before Easter, 10 o'clock at night. They've been driving all day long. I stayed up late. I was preparing my Easter sermon, final bits. I see the lights, the, the car approaches. I go and open the door, and everyone runs right past me. We got a dog in November. Do you know who they went to hug? who they embrace with kind words. Skipper, not me. I was pointed to all the luggage in the back of the minivan. That's fine. Like you hug your dog, hug Jesus, all right? What I'm saying is approach with the fullness of your emotion, with the way you run and embrace. This is what Jesus wants. He wants you in your messiness and your smelliness. He wants to love and embrace you where you are right now. He's desperate to be with you, and he wants you to be desperate and excited to be with him at all times. You see, with Jesus, there's no need to hide our doubts and skepticism. There's no need to hide our denials and cowardice, even our gross sins and complete failures. Throw yourself fully on Jesus, on his grace and mercy. The irony is, the more we fully cast ourselves on Jesus, the more we allow the gospel to transform our self-understanding, our heart, our mind, to become our first love, the more we will depend on and enjoy and walk in grace, not overvaluing performance. The more we'll openly admit our sin and our weakness and deal well with our failures. 
the more we'll live for others, love others more than ourselves. And then, the more we'll finally, truly succeed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our friend, the one who wants to meet us in breakfast and in miracles, in wet hugs. We don't need to be clean or right. We need to admit our mess and trust in your grace. I pray that we would learn to live that way so that we could deal with our successes and our failures rightly, so that we can know what it is to enjoy our first love in you, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Oh